Welcome to the Ginghamsburg Podcast. After today's message, take a second to download the Ginghamsburg app. It's the best way to find out about and engage with what's happening at Ginghamsburg. We hope the following message helps you activate your faith and take the next step in your journey with Jesus. Pastor George is from Grace Church in Cape Coral, Florida. That's right. When he left on Friday, it was 80 degrees. And on Friday night when he got here at the airport, it was 14 degrees. You're welcome, George. (laughs) And so it is a delight that he's here. I could tell you so many incredible things about George, how he grew that church from hundreds to thousands, how they're at three campuses, how they have this singles ministry where this like couple of weeks ago, they changed the oil in 85 cars. Their recovery ministry is astounding. It's nationwide. I could tell you all of this stuff that George, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his willingness, has led this church to do. That's all good stuff. But my favorite thing about George is this. His word for the year is diminish. He is literally pouring out his life and other leaders so that Jesus can become more and George can become less. I don't know about you, but when I grow up, I want to be just like Pastor George. Surrendered completely to the Lord. Now he'll say, I'm a work in progress, Rachel, but I'm like, BS, you're way further along than I am. So brothers and sisters, it's my honor to share my friend with you today. So I want you to give George Acevedo an incredible Ginghamsburg welcome. So I'm hobbling because I just had a total left knee replacement six weeks ago. So, and the step, my freezer's not this cold back home. Come on, how do y'all live here? I mean, I don't, I'm, well, never mind. I was going to say something about Jesus living here, but that's, that's probably heresy. It's just so good to be with you. And you don't know this, uh, but the ripples of this church influenced me as a young pastor to believe that there was a different way to do church. And um, what you may not know about Ginghamsburg Church is that through the decades, the sacrifice, there's some folks here uh, in the room and online who've, like for decades, you've poured your life into this. And you've wondered, has it really made a difference? And I want you to know, in, in great part, I'm standing here and leading the church that I've been privileged to be the pastor at for 25 years this year uh, because of the witness of this church. And so thank you. Thank you for being a church that's passionate for people on the margins, that cares for the globe, the entire planet, wants the whole world to know of the love of Jesus, and for your radical commitment to that. And as a witness uh, of that, I'm here today. And so, so thank you. And Pastor Rachel, thank you for being so good to me. You and John, um, they treated me like family. I walked out in my jammies uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, nobody was there, but I walked out in my jammies. I felt at home. Uh, Sarah's here. She's my best little friend. I'm going to take her home with me to Florida to raise with my grandbabies. So it's good, it's good to be with you. So there's a simple little tricky question that you've already asked this morning to somebody. We do it all the time. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like muscle memory. We just, we see somebody, we don't know what to say to them. And so we ask this simple little tricky question and it's, how are you? Now, 
depending on the person and the circumstances, there's one of two possible motives behind that. And, and one of them is, I don't know what to say to Fred, so I'll just ask him how he's doing. <laughs> and the truth is that we probably don't care that much what their answer to that is. It's like, I, how are you? I need to get to the coffee machine, right? But then there's a, there's a second category of people in our life, and I, and I know it's a spectrum, but there's a second category of people in our life. So we ask the question, how are you? And we really, really care. We really, really care about their response because uh, we, we, we've come to believe and we know that at, at the end of the day, all we got are our relationships, right? And relationships really, really matter. And one of my professors in seminary, uh, I went to Asbury Theological Seminary, and one of my professors there um, had been a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And he said in New Guinea, they don't ask the question, how are you? When they bump into one another, they ask this question. I catch this. How are your relationships? <laughs> now, doesn't that change things, right? That, that seems to get to, to the core because I think all of us in this room and watching online, we, we know this truth. We know that, well, I'm married for 40 years to Cheryl, and when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? I know that, that, that when my relationships get sideways, I mean, I get sick to my stomach. I can't sleep because those relationships, they really matter to me. When me and my sons, I have adult kids, and when me and my sons, when we get in disagreements, I mean, it undoes me because it really matters. How are you doing? Well, how are your relationships? How are your relationships? As a matter of fact, I think you could argue that the wellness of your emotional life, the vitality of your spiritual life, you can draw a straight line between those two things and the quality of our most important relationships. One of my other professors at Asbury, uh, Dr. Bob Mulholland, now in heaven, he wrote this in one of his books. If you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of your relationships with others. So I can pray and journal and read my Bible and tithe and fast and care for the poor and do all of the things that I believe Jesus would ask me to do. But if I don't invest in my 40-year marriage to Cheryl, uh, come on, how's my spiritual life going to be? Again, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so, so what I want to talk about today for just a few minutes, uh, as we move into part four of this sermon series that we've entitled Health Check, I want us to consider for just a, a few moments about the wellness of not just our relationships, but of our emotions and our spiritual life. Because again, we can, we can draw straight lines between all of those things. And what I want us to do today is we're going to settle in on a text written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison to the church at Philippi. Now remember that the first century church isn't beautiful buildings with a wonderful worship team. The church in the first century is house churches. And Paul's writing letters from a Roman prison, and he's writing them to these uh, network of house churches. There was a person, uh, New Testament scholars believe, who would go from house to house and read these letters. And the Apostle Paul has no understanding that what he's putting pen to paper is actually going to make it into the Bible. 
And Paul uh, gives to us uh, uh, this connection between emotional and spiritual health and the quality of our relationships as he, as he receives word in Rome that at the church in Philippi, there was actually two sisters in the fellowship that weren't getting along with one another. Now imagine this, that there would be a gathering of people who were followers of Jesus that didn't get along with one another. Can you believe that? But it was actually true that these women did not get along with one another. And here's the deal. Paul's in Rome, in prison. Philippi is 800 miles away. No Facebook account. No texting. And he receives word that these two women and their disagreement was rippling into the fellowship of the church and causing division. So let, let me read to you kind of this preamble to the text we're actually going to focus on. Philippians 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it for you. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Then here comes the two sisters. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. It appears that these two women were part of the core group, if you will, of the church at Philippi. They were leaders in the life of the church, and yet, and yet they were at odds with one another. And Paul loves and longs for these people. He calls them his joy and his crown. When we flip over to the book of Acts, we learn that Paul, in a second missionary journey, makes his way to this Roman colony called Philippi. And there, in one of the most beautiful stories in all of the book of Acts, Paul leads a diverse group of women and men to Jesus. Uh, Luke tells us about three people that Paul led to Jesus. Uh, one of them was a rich woman, Lydia, an entrepreneurial woman, who made purple cloth. So she was an upper crust woman. The second was a poor slave girl. She was at the bottom of the social ladder and he led her to Jesus. And the third was a middle-class Roman jailer. And so you have this beautiful picture in the book of Acts that the church of Philippi was this diverse group of women and men and rich and poor. And then we read in the book of Acts that on his third missionary journey, he spent five years with them. I've been at my church uh, for 25 years. We've just announced that in two years, I'm going to be stepping aside and uh, my lifelong colleague is going to become the new uh, lead pastor at Grace Church. And I love and long for those people. Between services, I've been going online and watching our people worship. And that's the sentiment that, that Paul has here. No wonder he would write in this letter. Remember, he doesn't know that it's going to be in the Bible. They don't understand. I mean, they have no idea that they're writing the letters of the New Testament that 2,000 years ago we would pour our lives over and ask God to shape us by reading it. And Paul, Paul says, listen, there's a problem. There's this disunity, and it's spilling out, and it's destroying what God's dream is for the people of God. So our word for today is the word focus. Say Focus. My goodness, come on. I thought this was a Methodist church. Say focus. 
Focus. Yeah, it's, it's focus. Don't we know this to be true? That when our relationships get sideways, our lives get disintegrated. We lose focus. We lose, we lose focus and we disintegrate. We scatter. We fall apart. And so what we're going to learn about today from the Apostle Paul is how we can have focus so that we can be emotionally and spiritually in relation to you well. So we're going to look at the text. Here's the text we're going to consider. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Some of us in this room have studied these texts and know these well. For some of us, this is brand new stuff. So what I do it back home to make sure that my folks are awake, because they're not as anywhere near sanctified as the good people at Ginghamsburg Church, is I have them read the scripture with me, all right? So it's going to be on the screen. Let's read together. Ready? Go. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the peace of God or the God of peace will be with you. Now, it seems to me that in this kind of lofty prose that we just read about, or that we just read together, that Paul kind of connects our wellness. How are you doing with our relationships? How are your relationships? And I think, as I've kind of lingered in these texts for the last several weeks, that, that what we pick up are some clues, some insights on how we can be well emotionally and spiritually and relationally. And, and he begins by saying that the, the, the secret to this fullness of wellness in our life is to be joyful and gentle, but not just joyful and gentle. This is not something we muster up, but we need to be joyful and gentle, he says, in the Lord, in the Lord. And and so look at Philippians 4, uh, verses 1 through 5 with me again. Paul, Paul says, rejoice, what? In the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, what? The Lord is near. So, so you see that, that Paul isn't just saying rejoice or, or be gentle. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. Now, be gentle because God's watchful eye is looking over you. I want to kind of take this apart and look at rejoice real quickly and, and gentle real quickly. Um, one of the premier New Testament scholars uh, that's alive today um, is Bishop Dr. Uh, N.T. Wright. And he writes about this word rejoice that Paul uses twice. And here's what he says. He says, often the word here is translated rejoice. And we normally understand that word today, I think, as meaning something that happens inside people, a sense of joy welling up and making them happy from within. And all that is important and is contained within Paul's command. But in his world and culture, this rejoicing would have meant what we would call what? Public celebration. Yeah, public celebration. The world all around in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and elsewhere used to organize great festivals and games and shows to celebrate their gods, small g, in their cities, 
not the least the new God, Caesar himself. Now listen to this. Why shouldn't followers of King Jesus celebrate exuberantly? It's only right. And celebrating Jesus as Lord encourages and strengthens loyalty and obedience to him. When I came to Jesus 43 years ago this week, a drug addict, an alcoholic, first-generation Christian didn't know uh, Jesus from a hole in the wall. I, I told the leadership team yesterday that the day I said yes to Jesus, I smoked a joint to celebrate the fact that I was a Christian. And some of you aren't laughing, but I mean, I'm telling you, that's how much of a pagan I was. And that was, that's where I was. And let me just say this. If you are going to reach pre-Christian people, they're going to come with their mess because they don't have the decoder ring. They, 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 don't, they don't know when they walk in here what hallelujah means. Raise mine, Ebenezer. What it, are we doing that in church today? I don't know what that means. And yet, my friends, um, we need to create safe spaces where it's okay not to believe in Jesus. <laughs> And that's what the church needs to be. And, and, and when I saw first, so I walk into church, and it's back in the 70s, Pentecostal or charismatic renewal is happening in my church, um, which I told again the leaders yesterday, that meant we raised our hands to hear. We weren't full here. We raised our hands to hear. And, and I walk into this church, and people are raising their hands, and I'm going, um, what's the matter with them folks? And then I began to read the Bible. I was, I was just young and naive in the Lord. I began to read the Bible and I began to read things like the Bible. The Psalms particularly says, lift your hands before the Lord. It's like the magic wasn't going to happen. The spirit wasn't going to hit me. And I was all of a sudden going to go, you know, it was a choice. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, let your, let your joy overflow. Some of us, some of us, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm getting on an airplane and I'm going home so I can say this. I looked at some of y'all during, during worship and you need to let that worship get up in your face because your face is not telling us that you, you're rejoicing in the Lord. I'm sorry. And it's true of me sometimes. So, so uh, then, then there's this word gentleness. Can I tell you if I've learned anything uh, during this season of uh, disease, disaster, disorientation? Oh, since COVID kind of hit, since racial stuff hit, since our political, you know, we can't even have civil conversations and disagree with one another. Can I tell you what the Lord keeps saying to me over and over again? Right, like right before I press send on an email or post on one of my social media accounts, I hear the whisper of the Spirit. Hey, George, memes not a fruit of the Spirit. Dang it, I gotta erase that. Can't send that. And that's why Paul says, he says, look, be gentle because God's watching you. Not, not, not as a he's gonna get you, but because you love your Abba God so much, you wouldn't want to do anything that would disappoint him. So, so Paul says, um, live joyfully, publicly, live gently in your life before the Lord. And so that's the question I want us to try to answer today. And because this is the last service, we might go a little bit long, but that's okay. Don't, don't, don't get unhappy in church. How can I live joyful and gentle in the Lord? How can I live joyfully and gently in the Lord? And so Paul's going to help us here. I think the text we just looked at gives us 
uh, I think, at least three doable practices. Remember, this series is about what we can put into practice in our everyday life that helps us live joyfully and gently in the Lord. Number one, practice prayer that overcomes anxiety. Say that with me. Practice prayer that overcomes anxiety. Now, while I got you talking, let's read verses six and seven. Ready? Go. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there is so much in this. We could spend the next hour on this, and we won't, I promise, spend just a few minutes. Here's what Paul says in this text. He says, we get anxious about stuff. Can I get an amen in church on that? Anybody other than me get anxious? Anybody other than me worry? And Paul says, listen, we're gonna worry. We're gonna be anxious. But he says, don't be anxious about what? Anything. He says, don't be anxious about anything. He says, the antidote, if you will, the great remedy to worry and anxiety, he says, is prayer. He says, it's prayer. And, and think about it this way. What is worry? What is anxiety? A friend of mine who suffers from uh, an anxiety disorder, a chemically induced anxiety disorder, said to me, he said, George, have you ever watched your, uh, the spin cycle in your washing machine? He says, that's, that's, he says, it's like I get a dreadful thought and it just, and that's what, that's what worry and, and anxiety does to us, right? It, it's, it's stuck on spin cycle. And, and, and so uh, what we're doing when we pray is, it's like turning a sock inside out. We're, we're changing directions, if you will. Instead of keeping this thing locked inside, Paul says, instead of worrying about everything, take everything and lift it up to God. It's, this, it's, it's just, it's our memory, our memory muscle, our muscle memory has us turning it inward. And Paul says, lift it upward. Turn the spin cycle up to God. It's lifting myself and my concerns up to God. And then he says, if we will do that, we can experience a great exchange. And this is, you know, I travel internationally and there's an, ex I'm always looking for the best exchange rate. This is the best exchange, exchange rate I've ever seen. He says, exchange your worries for God's supernatural peace. Now, I'll take that every day. I'll take God's supernatural peace. And, and by this kind of prayer, he's not talking about simple, glib, mechanistic, magic formulas. That's not the kind of prayer he's talking about. That's not the kind of spiritual work that we're trying to do. It's taking everything in our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, not some sanitized prayer that we think we need to bring to God. Think about the prayers in the Bible. I mean, when you really look at them, they're raw. They're messy. They're vulnerable. As a matter of fact, do you know that one-third of the Psalms, the prayer book for the church, one-third of the Psalms are what we call laments. There's a whole book called Lamentations, and there's another word, I can't say it in church, for Lamentations. It starts with a B, and you know what it is. And, it's, I mean, and that's what we do in prayer. But here's the beautiful thing about Lamentations. It's, it, it, it always starts with this kind of raw stuff, but it always ends in doxology. It ends in praise to God. So take Job, for example. 
I mean, he has these self-righteous friends who come to him and say, listen, you lost everything because you must have done something wrong because their operating system was karma. You know what karma means? You get what you deserve. And, and frankly, many followers of Jesus live by karma. And we think, oh, why is this happening to me? I must have done something wrong. Listen, I, had a, I have a kid, he's now 33 years old, who spent 15 years in addiction to drugs and alcohol while we're helping, our church is helping thousands of people come to deliverance. My son, 20 yards away, is dying in his bedroom. And I'm going to tell you, in those days, my prayer life was not sanitized. I took God to task like Job did. Job said, why was I ever born? Why was I even conceived? I wish I had died at birth. And I took God to task in those days. I'd say, God, it's not fair. I'm helping thousands of people come to know Jesus. Our church is helping thousands of people get in recovery. And my precious boy, at the end of the hallway, he's dying, God. Are you asleep? Do you care? But I will praise you. I will love you. And I will believe you for my son's deliverance until I die. And I can tell you today, he's four years sober. Can we give God praise for that? It's the great exchange. And then Paul says, he says, as you tell God everything, give him thanks. Somebody needs to hear this in this room and online. Do you know that gratitude can change your life? So uh, two Indiana professors uh, did this research. They, they invited people to be a part of this research project. And they were mostly uh, students, though there were a few non-students, that were part of this sample study. He divided them into three groups. They all came asking for mental health counseling, which, by the way, everybody needs Jesus and therapy. That's why I'm just going to leave it at that. Everybody needs Jesus and therapy. And, 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 and they were coming to get some help. And so he divided them into three groups. In one group... The first group, um, they would, their assignment was that every week, for three weeks, only for three weeks in this study, every week they would write a, a letter thanking somebody in their life for something. The, the second group would journal, and they would just journal their anxieties, their concerns. They would just write out what they were worried about. And the third group did nothing. They just had therapy. So what did they find when they did the research and they pulled it all together? Well, here's one quote out of the website where I found this study. Compared with the participants who wrote about negative experiences or only received counseling, those who wrote, now check this out, gratitude letters reported significantly better mental health for four weeks and 12 weeks after their writing exercise ended. Remember, they only did it for three weeks. This suggests that gratitude writing can be beneficial not just for healthy, well-adjusted individuals, but also for those who struggle with mental health concerns. In fact, it seems practicing gratitude on top of receiving psychological counseling carries greater benefit than counseling alone, even when that gratitude practice is brief. And the Apostle Paul, he wasn't a neurologist, but he understood this. He said, as you make this great exchange, your worries for God's peace, be grateful. One of my pastors 
uh, on our staff has uh, 40 years of recovery. And she always says this, grateful alcoholics don't drink. That's the power of gratitude. And so then comes this promise for God. He says, as you tell God everything, as you thank him, then God's going to give you this unexplainable gift of his supernatural peace. And he uses this great word in the Greek language. It's the word that's, that's used to describe, it's a noun that's used to describe a Roman guard. Now you've seen these movies, these Roman guards, they're big, they're burly, they're bad booty guys. I mean, these boys are tough, okay? These boys are tough. And Paul uses that word, and we translate it garrison or guard. And it's, this is not some wimpy little, you know, security guard. You know, this is not Barney Fife. Uh, some of you too young, Google it. it. It's Mayberry RFD. It's not Barney Fife. I'm 61. I'm sorry. And, and he says, God will plant around the center of your emotions, your heart, and the center of your intellect your mind, a bad boy to keep out worry and anxiety. That's the power of, of, of practicing gratitude. It's what helps us. I mean, if I knew God's perfect peace in the midst of my anxieties, I'd be filled with joy and I'd be gentle in my relationships. Here's the second thing. Paul, Paul, I think, gives us this doable practice. Establish patterns of thought that celebrate God's goodness. Say that with me. Establish patterns of thought that celebrate God's goodness. Now let's read verse 8 together. Ready? Go. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, what Paul knew here is something that all of us know. Whatever gets our attention gets us. Whatever settles in our mind, Paul understood would be, would, would be what drives our life. And again, remember, the living laboratory for Paul, he's writing this from a stinking Roman prison. He's not writing this from the Ritz-Carlton in Fort Lauderdale. He's writing this from a prison. And if anybody had a right to do what my friends in the AA call stinking thinking, it was Paul. I started thinking this week about um, imagining that if Paul had an Instagram account, what he could have written. Here's, here's just three of them. I'm having revenge fantasies against Jewish leaders and Roman officials for putting in me, me in here. I want to kill someone. Uh -huh. You've had those murder thoughts, yeah? Here's another one. Uh, I'm suffering from plum disease. My wife says I has it. It's called poor little old me. Um, I think Rachel says that John has it too. Um, somebody help a brother out. Yeah. How about this? My mind is swirling with worry. I think the Romans are trying to kill me and the food stinks too. <laughs> now, th there's no hint that Paul allowed these thoughts or anything else to capture his attention. He did not allow his attention to be captured, listen to me, by his circumstances. And some of us, when we're walking up to one another and it's how you're doing, I can tell by your face that you're allowing your circumstances to capture your attention. So Paul says, have a different mindset. 
And, and he understood this because he was living it. He, he tells us to, 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 to think differently, think as citizens, not of earth, but think as citizens of heaven. Let me just kind of go over this. We are to think on things that are true, not deceptive. Let me ask you, when you're watching, I don't care what you watch, CNN or Fox News, I don't care what your political ideology is. Are you thinking on things true, not deceptive, honorable, not cheap? Justice, just, not unjust. Pure, not whole, unholy. Pleasing, not unlovely. Commendable, not impure or false. Excellent, not deplorable. Praiseworthy or degrading. At the end of the day, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, when you think, let your filter be the virtue that we see in Jesus. The virtue that we see in Jesus. Barbara Johnson was a great author of a decade or so ago. She died in 2007 of cancer. And, but, but this girlfriend's biography was, was like, it, her circumstances were tough. She had a husband who almost died of a disease. She had one son killed in Vietnam, another son killed by a drunk driver, and a third son who was estranged from the entire family. And yet she learned and she taught the Christian church in America that pain is inevitable but misery is optional. And it all has to do with our circumstances. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. And I, I just wrote out a couple of the titles of her books. She, she wrote one book called Pack Your Gloomies in a Great Big Box. That would do well for some of us, right? And then this one's for the sisters. Living somewhere between estrogen and death. Come on now. Uh, God's, here's another one. God's most precious jewels are crystallized tears. And then here's my favorite. Plant a geranium in your cranium, sprouting seeds of joy in the manure of life. Isn't that great? You see, Barbara Johnson taught us that what fills our mind, what gets our attention wins the day. You are what you think. So think patterns or thoughts that are of the virtue of Jesus that celebrate the goodness of God. So let me connect number one about prayer and number two about thoughts with sharing with you a little discipline that I have. It's three questions I, I write out every day and I do it electronically so that it's on all of my tablets and my computers, but it really helps me to review. And here's three questions. You might want to screenshot this. Number one, what are five things for which I'm grateful? Now, we just saw the study that says gratitude actually changes your brain chemistry. Uh, the research I did this week said that it actually changes your brain chemistry. So what if at the beginning of the day, instead of thinking about what you don't have, you can think about what you do have? Do you know what I wrote uh, yesterday? I'm grateful for my little friend Sarah right here. I'm going to take her home. I promise you. She is, she's remarkable. She teaches me joy. She's wonderful. After church, we're playing zoo. She already told me that. What are you grateful for? Number two, what one thing is bothering me? Oh, somebody needs to hear this today. You ever get shanghaied by your thoughts and what's bothering you? Happens to me all the time. So what would happen at the beginning of the day if before the Lord, you just simply said, Lord, what's bothering me? What's bothering me? Because you know what happens when you write it out? You take the fang out of the serpent's mouth. You take the poison out of the serpent because you've named it. And so it can't Shanghai you later in the day. And then number three, what two things do I need to do to make today great? This is about living intentionally, about living intentionally in the Lord. Sometimes I just have to say, Lord, help me to slow down. 
Help me to begin this tough conversation I need to have with somebody today. Help me to begin with questions instead of with statements. Oh, I'm guilty of that one. So what two things do I need to do? I think if we can practice this kind of stuff, we can live joyfully, uh, public celebration, and gently uh, in the Lord. Number three, real quick. Number three, live a lifestyle that embodies the gospel. Say that with me. Live a lifestyle that embodies the gospel. Look at, let's read verse nine together. Ready, go. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul was all about imitation. And he was first of all about imitation of Jesus. But then this isn't the only place where Paul says, imitate me. He tells us to imitate him as he imitates Jesus. Now, you could read that as arrogance, but I don't think that's what it is. I think it's what I would call quiet confidence. When I think of quiet confidence, I think of that bold woman who, as Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house to raise his daughter from the dead, she reaches out and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. I think that's, that's kind of the posture of Paul's heart. He's not saying, look at me. He's saying, look at me as I look at Jesus. I mean, y'all didn't get to see this unless you're sitting right here on the front row. I, I was watching Sarah watch her mom worship, and what, what mama did is, is what Sarah did. And that's what, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about this kind of quiet confidence that's coupled with passionate commitment to Jesus to make the kingdom of God, the realities of heaven, the realities of earth. And it, he, he tells us that we need to embody the gospel. Because all of us know what the opposite of embodying the gospel is, right? It's that Greek word, hypocritos, the wearer of mask being two-faced. It's, it's practicing, not what, or it's not practicing what we preach. And, and please hear me, I'm not throwing stones. I'm the greatest sinner of all. With Paul, I'm the chiefest of sinners on, on this one. Sometimes I preach a gospel I'm not living so, so uh, one of my colleagues has a leadership coach, and, and decades ago, uh, this leadership coach, uh, they had made an agreement that they would meet. The only time they could find a meet was at 6 a.m. at Burger King. For one hour a week, they were going to meet. And, and my, friend, my friend said that, that um, uh, he would always show up 15 minutes late. And that went on for about a month. And, and he showed up about the fourth or fifth time, late 15 minutes. And his coach had a napkin from Burger King. And he had written, he had drawn two arrows, one pointing one direction and one pointing the other. And he said to my friend who was being coached, he turned the, 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 the little napkin around and he said, do you know what this represents? He says, it represents your life right now. Because you say one thing, I'll be here at six and you do another thing, you show up at 6.15. And do you know what they call that? They call that lack of integrity. So the idea is to get the arrows aligned. It's, that's what Paul's talking about here, is, is what does it mean for us? And please hear me, I'm not talking about some rigid, I got it all right, I know what's right, Phariseeism. God knows the Christian church, particularly in America, has enough Pharisees in it. That's not what we're talking about here. Remember, we're talking about joy-filled, gentle, mean is not a fruit of the Spirit, followers of Jesus who embody the gospel, like my friend Ryan. My church is really blue-collar, and so 
Ryan's a small business owner. He was a small business owner in our church. He drove a Ford pickup truck with a little ratty old uh, trailer, and he had a couple of lawnmowers on it, and he mowed lawns for a living. And he said he'd come to our church. He, he was an alcoholic. He got sober. We baptized him, and, and he's a passionate follower of Jesus. Not perfect, but passionate. And he said he was driving down the road one day, and he saw a man uh, experiencing homelessness. And so he pulled over because he heard the Spirit say, you know, this is like when you're young and dumb in the Lord, you just do what the Spirit tells you to do. So he pulls over, and the Spirit had told him, take the guy to lunch. So he put the guy in his truck. He doesn't know this guy. He could be an axe murderer. And he takes the guy uh, to McDonald's, and they, they enjoy an Egg McMuffin together. And he said God wrecked him over that breakfast as he listened to this poor man and his circumstances. And he couldn't change the guy's life, but he could at least listen to the guy. And so he, he leaves the guy, and he makes his way back to church, and I happen to be available. And he comes into my office, and this is a big, tough, rough, alcoholic and recovery guy. And tears streaming down his face, and he goes, George, what is happening to me? And I said, you're becoming like Jesus. You're embodying the gospel. So you know what he did? He sold his trailer and his lawnmower. And he begged for me to bring him on staff as our director of recovery at half the salary. Not so he could make sure our facilities are nice because Ryan does a pretty good job of that. But let me tell you what he's really good at. He leads the team that helps single parents in our church and in our community get their oil changed every three months. He leads the teams that take the food to our three dinner churches and three pockets of community where we minister with the poor around table. He leads the teams that make sure that our single moms have diapers and have the proper care for their babies. And Ryan... I mean, he's embodying the gospel. And every day he lives his life, it, it, it's like he's saying, you know, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, the main thing that you bring the church, listen to me, Ginghamsburg, the main thing that you bring Ginghamsburg church is the person that you become. And that's what everyone will see. That's what will get reproduced. That's what people will believe. Now, check this out. So, arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Deep contentment and joy and confidence in your everyday life with God. That's what Paul teaches us here. He says, rearrange your life. Pray about everything. Exchange your worries and your anxiety for the supernatural peace of God. Practice that. Change the way you think. Think your life. Let it, the filter of the way you think be the life of Jesus, the virtue that you see in Jesus. And live a life that incarnates, that, that embodies the gospel. Listen to the whisper of the Spirit when God tells you to do something because the Spirit of God every day is telling you to do stuff. Like be nice to your neighbors. Like love the people on the margins. Like be kind to those in your home. So I want to end where I began. 
I want to ask you, King of Absurd Church, how you doing? Please hear me. How are you really, how are you really doing? Let's arrange our life every day so that we're experiencing confidence and joy in the Lord. So what I want us to do is just have a few moments of prayer before we finish. Would you, would you uh, stand with me this morning? And um, just a few days ago, we had uh, this amazing speaker at our church for a conference we were hosting. Um, her name is Danielle Strickland. I highly commend her to you. And uh, she led us through this kind of prayer exercise. And, and I, I just want to invite you, if you would, uh, if you're comfortable, would you just close your eyes for just a moment and just kind of hold your hands out in front of you for just a second. And you know how we breathe? We breathe out and we breathe in. That's, that's how we stay alive. And I want to invite you just to breathe out and breathe in and breathe out and breathe in. And I'd like for you to breathe out anything in your life that right in this very moment, because that's all we got is this moment, that's an anxiety or a worry or a heartache. Maybe you got your version of a son uh, who was living like my boy was. And maybe your relationships, maybe like they're like Iodia and Syntyche, they're at odds. There's some relationships that are unfocused and are disintegrating. Maybe you got more month than you got money. And I invite you to breathe that out. And to breathe in the peace of God. To breathe out thoughts that are unbecoming of Jesus. And to breathe in thoughts of him. And to breathe out a life that doesn't embody who Jesus is, and to breathe in the Spirit of God who fills you and wants you to embody Jesus to a broken world. One of the things Danielle asked us to do is simply to breathe out the word be. Would you do that with me? Breathe out the word be. Be. And breathe in the word loved. Loved. Do it again. Be. Loved. One more time. Be loved. My sisters and brothers, you are the beloved of Jesus. The beloved of the Father, the beloved of the Spirit. You are his child, the one in whom he is well pleased. Through this series, we've been praying Mr. Wesley's a covenant prayer. And it's a prayer of surrender. So with your hands out in front of you, your palms up, let's, let's pray this prayer together as the people of God. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. 
And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. And the people of God said, amen. I hope you enjoyed today's message. I've got two invitations for you before you go. First, subscribe to our podcast so it shows up in your feed every week. And if today's message inspired you and you'd like more people to hear it, you can give a financial gift through the Ginghamsburg app or online at ginghamsburg.org.